remember, remember. Remember not to forget. Let us remember, remember. Let us remember to remember. May we remember, remember. May we remember not to forget. Let us remember, remember. May we remember the dismembered. Let us remember, remember. Remember not to forget. Not to forget. Not to forget. But the biggest weapon wielded and actually daily unleashed by imperialism against the collective defiance is the cultural bomb. The effect of a cultural bomb is to annihilate a people's belief in their names, in their languages, in their environment, in their heritage of struggle, in their unity, in their capacities, and ultimately in themselves. It makes them see their past as one wasteland of non-achievement and it makes them want to distance themselves from that wasteland. It makes them want to identify with that which is farthest removed from themselves. For instance, with other people's languages rather than their own. It makes them identify with that which is decadent and reactionary. All those forces which would stop their own springs of life. It even plants serious doubts about the moral rightness of struggle, possibilities of triumph or victory are seen as remote, ridiculous dreams. The intended results are despair, despondency, and a collective death wish. Amidst this wasteland, which it has created, imperialism presents itself as the cure and demands that the dependent sings rhymes and hymns of praise with the constant refrain, theft is holy. Indeed, this refrain sums up the new creed of neo-colonial bourgeois in many independent African states. The classes fighting against imperialism, even in its own neo-colonial stage and form, have to confront this threat with the higher and more creative culture of resolute struggle. These classes have to wield even more firmly the weapons of the struggle contained in their cultures. They have to speak the united language of struggle contained in each of their languages. They must discover their various tongues to sing the song, A people united shall never be defeated. The theme of this book is simple. It is taken from a poem by the Guyanese poet Martin Carter, in which he sees ordinary men and women hungering and living in rooms without lights. All those men and women in South Africa, Namibia, Kenya, Zaire, Ivory Coast, El Salvador, Chile, Philippines, South Korea, Indonesia, Grenada, Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, who have declared loud and clear 
that they do not sleep to dream, but dream to change the world. I hope that some of these issues in this book will find echoes in your hearts. For non-Gikuyu speakers, uh, I'll just say what Gidhuku was reading just then was um, an extract of one of the latest uh, books uh, from our special guest tonight called Keda Moyoru, and it was basically explaining the different names, the clans, and the matriarchy, um, and and yeah, how the Gikuyu community kind of started. So. Uh, we'll be giving pointers to what people could do in terms of looking out for these books that are out there um, um, and the significance also, as, as I said, of, of acknowledging the matriarchs um, in the African communities. The second one was one of the most famous books, um, Decolonizing Our Mind, which we'll be delving into um, and, um, and explaining a little bit more about where that came from and, and it's, it's a great evening and, and I'm really pleased to see the, the messages floating around, uh, people saying hello from everywhere and we have Mwalimu Kogewa Diongo with us which is, um, yeah, we're good, we're good to have an interesting evening. So um, just also to acknowledge, uh, I know we've had technical issues but we've also, uh, just to acknowledge the team that's working behind the scenes. Um, um, that the ones that are not as visible. So we've got Laura and Sai and Sharon and Will. Um, and also we've got speakers who will be joining us later on. Um, Gidhuku himself and also uh, Dr. Christine Kahigi uh, as well. Um, I also want to just say Eid um, Mubarak to our friends and family and um, comrades. Um, as today we know they're celebrating, in fact, some of our uh, team members couldn't join us uh, because of that reason, um, but also at this moment really acknowledge what's going on in Palestine as well. Um, um, yeah, and before I introduce um, um, our guest, I just thought it'd be good for to tell you a little bit about the Racial Justice Network and why we're here and why we chose this evening. Um, just to kind of land with that, um, because I, I imagine some of you are perhaps booked on for the first time and are not necessarily aware about who we are and what we do. So I'm Penny and Penina Wangari Jones. Um, it's so funny because uh, we've been talking about this and we've spoken about names as well, and here I am doing Penny. Um, but also I, I acknowledge Penina is a Christian name and it was um, only a few years ago I asked my grandma um, where, where, where that name came from, because the names is in, in the Gikoyo communities are passed on, you're named after your grandparents. And she said when she was being Christianized, um, she was asked to, to pick a name and she looked and saw Penina and she thought, I like that one. And that's how obviously Penina came about, but the name Wangari is the one that obviously has more significance. And I've been, I've had the pleasure of understanding what Wangari means from our conversations with, um, and reading the book Kedamuyoru, in terms of the meaning of the name and and, and what that what that does, um, so I am Penina, as I said, and I'm the director of the Racial Justice Network. Uh, I also um, just as a pointer because this is also connected to some of the work that I'm doing. I'm currently undertaking my PhD at Manchester 
University, um, looking at how coloniality shapes black activism. Um, but coming back to the Racial Justice Network, it's a black-led um, anti-racist charity based in the north of England. Um, and by north of England, we're based in Leeds and Bradford, which, as you know, one of uh, uh, Professor Nguki's home turf or study turf uh, was in Leeds University. Um, we seek holistic, um, economic, cultural, and spiritual repairs to end racial injustice and address legacies of colonialism. And, and to do this, we've, we've centered the most marginalized, work predominantly with black and brown communities of racially minoritized communities, but we, by looking at how race intersects or links with other oppressions and identities. And uh, so the core of our work is, is around training, mobilizing, organizing, advocacy, more recently putting more around reports, which again, people who are familiar might have seen a lot more of our reports that are coming out recently. Um, and um, we have a range of projects, uh, quite a lot. And, and I thought I wouldn't necessarily get into all of them. Um, but again, as, as it was kind of, I saw the messages flying on earlier, saying to people um, to look in, like, you know, hashed, if you kind of sort of follow the social media uh, handles that we've got, you might also be able to look into the website and see other work that we do um, as well, just to kind of have a bit of a taster. Um, but the ones that really that, that are holding and, and maybe part of this evening's um, um, evening to us <laughs> um, in the UK, I know it's morning in California and in eight o'clock in Kenya. Um, so yeah, so um, yeah, through the course of it, you can, you can look through and see some of the projects. But the reason why we were holding this evening, the two projects that this conversation sits right in the middle of is internationalism and collective conversations. And collective conversations as a project was an attempt, at least an attempt, but our, our, our refusal or, uh, um, to allow diversity to colonize um, race and racism and the difficulty that people have around race, racism and racialism, understanding or talking about it. So we, we, we wanted to create a spaces that we can bring these conversations that bring in the colonial race lens that because as we know the, the where we are now that history of the enslavement of our people and 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 colonialism really sits center in terms of how global relations interact again we'll be talking about that later on so uh, the, the collective conversations as a project was uh, for us creating spaces where we can bring these conversations for people to learn and share and grow together and take action uh, as a result and the one on internationalism was predominantly around really recognizing that there is no way we can do race, racism, racialism within borders. Um, so we need to link and hold hands and also stand in solidarity with and learn from our brothers and sisters um, in the global south or what others call majority world. And, and for me, as a person who was born and bred in Kenya and I spent half of my life in the UK, I really kind of cut this definitely speaks truth to it. And, and this particular, this evening, I'd say the journey for this evening started uh, following an invite to Nairobi University in 2019 to talk about education and quality education. What is quality education? And, and where we were invited as a racial justice network and we were really asking people, what do we call quality? And, and the whole idea 
fear of alluding or kind of almost the, 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 the holding um, or, or the access around whiteness, but also what, what we consider universal, how that sits in and how kind of that goes back and forth. And then following on that, several months later, uh, was a, a, a trip that we had, a, a few of us from the Racial Justice Network, but again, in partnership with um, uh, activists Kivuku and others in Kenya that went to and spent a week there talking about decolonizing education. And we, well, a lot of all of that that we were doing, we had um, Professor Ngugi in our minds because we know this journey for him at least started 50 years ago, or these questions that we were posing now. So, and, and then since then, uh, clearly the projects have kind of, the, the links have continued, uh, the relationships have continued and not just in Kenya, it's in other parts. So acknowledging internationalism as a way forward, as we're pushing back on all of the other structural oppressions that we, we are existing in right now, um, was uh, the introduction to Professor Ngugi. And, uh, and I've had the real pleasure and honor of spending evenings, long conversations uh, with him and, and learning a lot, the wisdom, but also really appreciating and, and a lot of gratitude for that time and, and, um, and generosity as well uh, of that wisdom. And he felt that it's been really good for me to sit and, and almost sit at the steps and learn and engage. And, and we thought it'd be good if we could have this conversation uh, and invite the public to join us. And this is kind of where we are. So the, 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 the reason for this evening is kind of sat in three spaces of the US, uh, Kenya or Africa um, and, and UK. And now, as I said, I'm really pleased to see how many people have connected with us. So um, that is kind of a little bit about, not a little bit, uh, about the, the Racial Justice Network. And I'm sure I'll kind of reflect more as we try and make this space as informal as possible, as decolonial as possible, because we really also didn't want it to be like very formal and strict with it. So we wanted to kind of bring in a bit of storytelling, oral histories, but also um, allow for people to interact, which is why we're saying, if you can't necessarily interact with us directly here, definitely interact with us on social media. So uh, that said, um, I will now invite, um, uh, and to to kind of begin this 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 journey and and answer some of the questions that we had and we have and some conversations that we've had privately um, and I'm sure perhaps held in many other places um, and 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 I didn't think he needs much of a or you need much of a of an introduction because I'm sure people who've joined have seen and recognised your work. Um, but for the sake of people who haven't, um, um, and maybe actually it'd be good for you to share a little bit more as you tell the journeys, because we'll be asking questions around the books and why and why, you know, what was going on at the time. So um, it'd be good also to add elements that I leave out, uh, Professor Mugiwadiongo. Um, and so, yeah, so just a small bit of being here, I just want to welcome you and say thank you so much for uh, giving us your time and being here. You'll probably tell the story why we started a little bit late because of timings, um, but I'll leave that to you. Um, and really just maybe to begin with, I know we had, you heard the, 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 the bit that Gizuku read uh, about the, from the book, uh, 
about loss of languages, uh, culture, the, the, the association. And maybe you could begin with us on that as you kind of give us a little bit more of, of, I know you're in California, you're a professor at, at um, the university and yeah, a little bit more welcome. I just realized I'm, I'm going on longer than I intended because we started late. So over to you, Professor Guruadio. Uh, I was very moved by Gizuku's reading <laughs> and in his readings, he, at least selections, <laughs> he, uh, what he read programmarizes very well, you know, my own. or of the perfect nine, an epic that I wrote in Koyo. It's called Koyo. And I remember when I came to launch it in Kenya uh, about a year ago, uh, uh, and I did go to various places to read, or he read. <laughs> And he was so powerful. Uh, every time he read, everybody wanted a copy uh, of the of the of the book. And uh, in Moranga, women were following him, asking him, "Please read my. I want to know about my clan. I want to know about my clan." Yeah. Uh, so it was, yeah. So it was very wonderful. To hear you again, and you and Gary, we have been. Uh, you are quite right. You and I have been talking a lot on the phone uh, about this event in and other, you know, uh, uh, matters. Yeah, yeah, and I thought this this was going to be. I still hope it's going to be question and answer. So I can respond to whatever questions uh, you might have. Uh, if I summarize from my books, there are so many that I don't know which to start with. <laughs> um, but decolonize the mind. I might as well start with decolonizing the mind uh, uh, briefly and how it came to be. Yeah, because it tells my story. Yeah, in uh, yeah. Now the decolonizing the mind. Uh, I want to take you back to 1977. I was then professor and chair of the Department of Literature at Nairobi University. And some of us started uh, talking about theater to the people This was important because we used to have problems with the national theater. Yeah. So we started asking ourselves, but really, where is national theater? Uh, national theater resides among the people. Theater is from the people. That's where you get real national theater, where people are. That's where theater is. Yeah. 
in short, that's how we uh, started Camerido Community Education Cultural Center, uh, which is Camerido is a, a village which is about 30 kilometers from Nairobi. Uh, and there we produce a play in the language spoken by the community in that area, because you can't have theater of the people to the people and so on. You have to use the language. The, you can't go there and start theater in English or French or Portuguese, you know. Uh, you have to use the language people use. And in Camerado, it was a koyo, right? The play in Iko was called Gai Kadeda. In English, I'll marry when I want. It was very popular. Yeah. People used to come hire buses from uh, different parts of the country to just to come and see ordinary men and women. And by ordinary men and women, I mean factory workers, plantation workers, landless you know, uh, peasants. Uh, 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 instead of Kenya government appreciating what we had done, uh, the play was stopped on 11th November, 1977, I remember. Uh, and on midnight of December that first, uh, armed police in their vehicles with those blue and red lights uh, literally came to my house in Lemuru where I then lived. I used to work in Nairobi, but lived in the village and uh, I was picked at midnight. So that January 1978, I was in a maximum security prison in committee. It was during my prison days, so to speak, that I started asking myself, why should an African government put me in a maximum security prison for writing and performing a play in my mother tongue in Kenya. Uh, the reason why I asked that question is because I had written other books like Petals of Blood uh, in English or with Michelle Mogo, the play, The Trial of Darren Kemathi, and they were equally, if not more critical of the post-colonial condition. And I was not put in a maximum security prison. Yeah. But now this play performed by workers, factory workers and plantation workers in the village was stopped and I am in a maximum security prison. So that's really what started me really 
uh, I'd thought about languages before and so on, but really, this really made me start thinking about the language question uh, in Africa. I'll tell you what I thought about that. But those thoughts which I had in prison at the committee for a whole year in 78, yeah, were the ones which became the basis of my book, Decolonizing the Mind. Decolonizing the Mind came about because I was invited, I was then in exile in London. Uh, and I was invited by University of Auckland in New Zealand to give special lectures. Uh, They're called Rob lectures. Uh, in honor of their first, their founding chancellor of the university, right? Uh, they are what they call learned lectures. You just go there and give the lecture. There are four of them. You give them over a period of two weeks. Yeah. And that's how I came to give these lectures on uh, uh, the politics uh, of uh, language in African literature. That was the overall title later published under the title, Decolonizing the Mind. And I, I want to tell you very briefly what happened. The first day of my lecture, uh, the hall was packed, but mostly with faculty and students of the University of Auckland, you know, uh, generally white community. Second lecture, I started seeing people from the town and from the Maori people started streaming in because the word was, the word of mouth was advertising what some had heard, okay. But that lecture, it was virtually three quarters of Maori people and other Pacific peoples. By the fourth lecture, now the place was packed with Pacific peoples. And I remember an incident when it came to the question and answer, when one Maori person from the audience, he went and took the microphone from the uh, professor who was uh, uh, conducting the proceedings. And he said, these are our lectures. So he, the Maori person, started conducting question and answer, uh, right? In other words, Maori people took over the hall, okay? And eventually when I was leaving, um, a girl brought me a gourd, a Maori lady, young person, and she told me, you don't even have to know my name, uh, one reference to Maori or Pacific peoples. Uh, my reference were all to my African and Kenyan experience. But the lectures rang a bell. Yeah. This, so this is what I'm thinking about the language question. As I'm seeing it, it's more than just an African European phenomenon. It is a colonial 
problem. And I want to just briefly say this. Uh, the, whenever any people colonize another people anywhere in the world, the first thing they do is impose their language on the colonized. They impose their language on the colonized. Not only do they impose their language on the colonized, they make the colonized despise their own languages. So it's not a question of knowing a new language. It's a question of being made humiliated relative to your own language and getting glory relative to the colonizer's language. So you come to associate intelligence, power, something else, or with say English in our case, in the case of Kenya, or French, or Portuguese can be anywhere, right? And you can't have a, a negative attitude towards your own languages, and you don't know why, you just do it, you know? If someone speaks in English, you can see, oh, wow, intelligence, oh, wonderful. Huh? They speak in their mother tongue, oh, and it, oh, wow. I, this guy, has he been to England, as he's telling us, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, or, 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 you know, and you can try this. Uh, a person comes and says, I have, I'm very learned, I know, I know Italian, I know English, I know Italian, I know French, I know maybe Russian, you know, huh? and people say, oh, wow, right, with the eyes open, okay? Another person comes and says, I also know many languages. I know Luo, I know uh, uh, Maasai, I know Yoruba, Ibo, Zulu, Kikamba. And they will say, oh, but why? In other words, you talk about the African languages, you know, they'll be wondering why you, are you wasting time learning so many languages? But with French and Italian, they are wowed by that. Okay. All that's a part of the conditioning. It has nothing to do with languages where they are or this or this, you know, is the conditioning that makes us feel negative towards our, yeah. And I want to give you one example, two, two, very quickly. You can ask, we can talk about it a bit more and I've written about it in, in my, some of my books anyway. But let me just give you an example. And I want to go to an, an European country Ireland, you know, Ireland is part of, or not the whole of Ireland, at least Northern Ireland was part of, of Brick Horse. And Ireland was colonized by the English, put that way. Yeah. In fact, some English settled in Ireland, you know. But the English from about 1366 could not quite 
let conquer the Irish, you know, they were trying different ways to subdue the, uh, the Irish. Uh, but, and they passed many laws, you know, uh, uh, prohibiting English settlers from learning or speaking uh, Irish or prohibit Irish people from speaking Irish in the, uh, in a, near the plantation owned or by the English, okay. But still they could not. And then this, in 1596, a very prominent English poet, a contemporary of Shakespeare called Spencer, wrote a book, A View of Ireland at the Present Time. This book is a conversation between an English settler in Ireland and a visiting lord from London. And they are discussing how come we have not been able to subdue the Irish. And in the book, it is suggested that the most effective way of conquering the Irish is one, get at their names, their naming system, how they call themselves. If you can, for, you can make them forget to call themselves Mark so-and-so or O so-and-so, eh? they will soon forget who they are. You have to remember The other was language, <laughs> right? English, right? So those two, the naming system and language where the suggested means of making the Irish forget who they were, you know, erase their memory, okay, of who they were. That's one example. But let me tell you something else a little bit. Among the settler, in, in the, among the, uh, Spencer, although a poet, he was a settler in Ireland, meaning he was given a farm, like Kenyan, like Europeans used to have large plantations in Kenya or in Zimbabwe, although they were still in England, some of them, okay? The same thing, yeah. And among his neighbors was one called Walter Raleigh, eh? who was later founding Englishman, no, and I know those who have been to America, that African language that uh, were banned for the enslaved Africans from the continent. African languages were banned in the plantation. They could not speak the African languages, and those who spoke, some of them were hanged in both the Caribbean 
in the plantations. But note, for European settlers, their linguistic connection to Europe was never disconnected. But for African people, it was. Let me give you a third example. Two more and then I'll be done. Uh, Native Americans, okay. In 1823, uh, a certain Captain Pratt, his name, started a school Kakara, it's still there, in Pennsylvania, which means they brought Native American students to come. It's a kind of dormitory, what can you call dormitory, dorm school, residential school, they stay there. And the first thing, when they arrived, they found marks on the black board and were given a stick to point out. You put at any mark on the blackboard and it would happen that the mark you pointed happened to be an English name, right? The, the name you pointed at without knowing it's a name, just a mark, just touch anything on the blackboard. That piece of paper was written on a piece of cloth and it was tied sewn on your, the back of your shirt or whatever cloth you're wearing, and that became your name, your English name, okay? Again, they went through the same thing, their language being despised, being honored, yeah. So the same thing, and I can give you more, more examples, happening among Maori people. Huh? They tell of how some of them were beaten on their butts until blood came out when they were caught speaking Maori in the school compound, right? The same thing happened in Kenya, right? Those of my generation, anyway, I don't know about the current generation, those of my generation know how many times we were beaten on our butts, punishment, corporal punishment for speaking our mother tongues in the school compound. That's been sh shaming a kid, a child for speaking their mother tongue and praising him or her glory when he spoke very good English. It was like, ah, oh, very good, you know. Huh? and the others were keen, right? All were made, how did they get to know the people who did those things, like speaking their mother tongue? A monitor, a monitor or something else, uh, a piece of something would be given to the first student, and then he is to pass it on to whoever uh, was speaking Koyo or in the African language, and, uh, and in the evening, then you know all the people who had spoken <laughs> their mother tongues in the compound and were punished. Yeah. What, you look at that history and it's all over. I can give you more examples. It's the same pattern everywhere. You know, associate negativity, humiliation, pain to African languages 
or to colonize languages and associate glory and achievement to English and French. You know, so you bring about what is called conditioning. Condition works like this, very roughly, in a psychology, you know. You want to train a dog, yeah? you, you punish him or her when they do something you don't, the undesired behavior. And when they do a good thing, which you give them a biscuit or something, or meat or something, you know. Yeah? So for desired, undesired behavior, you punish the dog. After some time, the dog, begins to automatically avoid the thing for which he's being punished eh? and becomes now very efficient in what he is being praised with given food for okay it's the same pattern of conditioning you know Pavlov did experiments in which a dog was given food at a particular hour when a bell was rung Later, even without food, if a bell was rung at about that time, the dog would salivate, even if there's no food. But that's also what happens to us in terms of languages. We salivate when you hear the sounds of English and French, okay? And when the sound of an African language, you feel pain unless you're using the language as a joke. You know, when people want to make clever jokes, they'll do it in their mother tongue, <laughs> and then they laugh, you know. But when it won't become serious now, it's uh, English or French or Portuguese, you know. What I'm trying to say, these things are as a result of, it's calculated. It happened in every settler colony in the world, okay? By, but so what then happened after independence? We succumbed to that, right? Remember, it was the Kenyan new government, the independent Kenyan government, which abolished the teaching of African language even in primary school first two years, huh? right? So we succumbed to it. We think abnormality has been normalized as normal, all right? And we built policies, addiction policies. We built, you know, uh, other policies on the basis of English. We put a lot of money into English. Zero, zero money on African languages, right? So, Decolonize the mind, really, in a way. I'm sorry, to summarize what language is very, very important. Uh, I would say our names as well, quite frankly. And I want to say one thing I've seen in Kenya, for instance, among uh, ladies, you know, some of them were very educated, very wonderful people, and wonderful, and I'm very, I'm, I'm not saying anything negative about that, but when they write their names in terms of achievements, right? And I've seen this, they write Margaret. They say one is called Jerry. They write Margaret N dot for Jerry. And then whatever is their last name, whether it's husband's name 
or father's name. You see, an African woman's name becomes trapped, literally trapped, becomes a dot, trapped between a colony and patriarchy. Okay, because the woman has become a dot, dot. She may be the professors of anything, she may be, you know, whatever, in engineering, whatever our women have achieved and so on. But instead of their name becoming an example of what we, eh, they put a dot to their name and they leave out the English and so on. Just a small example, but, you know, but connect this with language as well. Yeah. So the colonize the mind is really, you know, about this, about the mind, because the mind, uh, you want to think about in a society, you think about economic aspects of society, uh, political aspects of society, cultural aspects, and psychological aspects. And colonization, as we know it, is economic, it is political, that's taking political power, it's cultural, and it's psychological as well. So when people think of decolonization, they have to think about all those levels of decolonization, you know, you know, economic, political, cultural, but no matter how we look at it, languages are a very important part of the entire decolonization uh, process. And by the way, that's why after committee, after my prison days, eh, or even during committee, I decided to uh, start writing in Ngikoyo, my mother tongue. Okay, and as you know, since then, I have seen 1978, I've written all my novels uh, in Ngikoyo, all my poetry is in Ngikoyo, and all my drama is in Ngikoyo. Eh? But that has not prevented from my books being accessible in other languages. They've been translated into Swahili, <laughs> they've translated into English, into French, into Russian, into uh, many languages in the world, right? So writing in Iko has not prevented my books from being accessible. And the last one, which I wrote in Iko, Kedamoyiru, the one for, from which Geduk uh, read, you know, Kedamoyiru, you know which was later translated into English as oh, it's Perfect Nine. It's the same book, Perfect Nine. And as you know, Perfect Nine was recently long listed for the International Booker Prize, the first time an African language book uh, in translation has been so listed, right? It can be done. But only we, say in the case of Africa, African people, but in the case of other people in Asia and, and, and America, Australia, for them to remember, only we who can do something about 
our languages. But knowing our languages does not prevent us from adding knowledge of other languages, right? There's no reason why every Kenyan should not know their mother tongue, then Kiswahili, then English, and any other language, you know. Or know your mother tongue and one or more of other African languages in Kenya, then Kiswahili, then English, then French, then Portuguese, then Mandarin, and so on. <laughs> so uh, for me then, decolonization means in the end, systems that allow us to be confident in ourselves, that we don't all have to look for validation from the West, right? We can do things, we can do amazing things, but we can learn from the West and East and everywhere else, right? Learning from others is a good thing, but you learn, you add to what you already have, to what you add to what, to, yeah, to the knowledge you already have, you add other knowledges and that's good, right? But we have been trained that if we abandon our languages, we don't know and know more about other people or Israel Europe, then we are more modern. We are not modern. We are simply enslaved. So let me uh, finish with that sentence, which I always use because it sums up everything for me. If you know all the languages of the world and you don't know your mother tongue or the language of your culture, that is enslavement. Yeah. But if you know your mother tongue or the language of your culture and add to it, all the languages of the world, that is empowerment. And for me, decolonization means collective empowerment, in our case, of the African people. Thank you so much um, for, for that. I think you've um, answered almost four questions that I had listed. Um, and I'm glad because it also means we can move on to um, other, other sections. But I think just to reiterate some of those points, because I remember, uh, yeah, we've had that conversation about women being trapped between the, the empire or colony and, and patriarchy. But I also remember well in, in school having, I think they used to call them monto or monzo, and you'd hang it on your neck because you'd be caught speaking the language and the embarrassment that went through that. Um, so I definitely know we, I don't know about current and now, and I'm, I'm aware that I've seen people kind of signing in saying that they've been Korogosho and uh, wherever else. So I wonder whether it's still happening. But I was also struck by something you said um, that, because um, it wasn't, it's not just about the language, it's also what the language carries, which is our culture and our traditions and our ways of doing things. I know when we've spoken, uh, we, I've shared about epistemicide, which is also the, 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 the death or the genocide of knowledge systems, whether it's native or the indigenous communities, which has been taken away. And some of the points I took down was around how 
the erection of a new language was almost in a, a, a new culture was at the cost or death of others and what you're saying time and time again is very much around that um that that the the association of you know humili humiliation the shame and the pain physical pain that people endured in school um meant that they've detached from and what i find funny is obviously i speak kikuyu and and have done because my my grandparents well, one of my grandparents in terms of literacy, um, being illiterate. So the language of communication was Gikoyo and that was fine. So I've learned it. But when I go to visit or when I'm back in Kenya, the, the surprise of the fact I can still speak Gikoyo and it's like, oh, how do you speak it now? And it's almost the expectation is when you go, you forget. And 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 the fact that you've retained it is, is and, and I feel like there's, there's, a, there's been a bit of pride in knowing and reading your work also not just about the language and the culture are really retaining and what I'm hearing time and time again is you're not saying let's not learn new you're saying learn new but you need to retain yours um there's something I I read that you were you was you you were you were speaking about this about how the colonizer or the oppressor came the tactic that they used was something about killing the native and, and saving the man or the woman. Mm -hmm. And in this case, producing a class of people. So I think there was a statement, it might have been somebody who's read it, where he said, uh, Indian in color, but English in taste, opinions, moral and intellect. And what yeah, you're, can, we've seen continuously is that. One was Captain Pratt, who said, Pratt. kill the one who's at the Carlisle school. He said, he did that to kill the Indian and save the man. You can find, you can Google that one there, you know. The other one was Macaulay in India in 1834. They were coming with a new education for recommending a new educational uh, uh, program for India. And India has a long history of written literature you know, through Sanskrit, okay? But they wanted to replace Sanskrit and inner languages and replace it with English. And they said, the reason why they wanted, his name is Macaulay, and you can get it, you can Google minutes on Indian education, minutes, like in minutes, okay? And he said, they are doing this, they want to introduce English because they want to create a class of Indians, Indians in name, in religion, in clothes, in everything, but with an English mind, right? That policy was more the same applied everywhere else, including Kenya. And you, for those who, who come from Kenya, just go to 1952 and see what was banned in 1952 in Kenya. All African-run schools that were using all African languages were banned. All African language newspapers, magazines were banned. Writers who wrote in African languages, like Akrao and Stanley Kagea, were in prison for 10 years, uh, maximum, you know, in, in detention camps. Others like editors of African newspapers like Womenyeri were exiled 
in London. This was in 1952. That's when there was a definite change uh, in language policy uh, in Kenya. And English became now the really systematically applied as the language of the new educated class, yeah. Thank you. And yeah, the, I think the point there was, the question I had further on was, so, you know, the former colonies fought for self-rule and gained independence, but what did they really gain? And I think what you've just been explaining there is some of that, obviously we're focusing on education, but the people who sat in power, again, there's another quote that you really like to share, and you shared with me several times with CLR James, uh, about who takes over usually is. So, um, so there's these kind of questions that you've answered that I feel like could allow us to do and play a, a short video. Uh, again, that tells this little bit of the story that you've shared a little bit just now, and then we'll come back to more questions and where I'll be able to invite um, now. I, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll do that when we've played the video. Um, I returned to Kenya from Leeds University, England, in 1967 and became a member of the English department at the University of Nairobi. Within a year, I had joined two other colleagues not in the department to write a document that called for its abolition. The reaction was swift and intense. Meetings were held at all levels of the university from the Department of the Faculty Board of Arts, the Senate, and beyond the corridors of the university, to the press, and even to Parliament. We had spoken the unspeakable, almost as if we had called for the end of the world. Over time, we were accused of many crimes. We wanted Shakespeare, abolished and replaced by Caribbean, African-American, Asian, and Latin American Marxists, including the most Marxist writers of all, V.S. Naipaul and Ralph Ellison. The debate and the consequences went beyond Nairobi to other universities in Africa and beyond, generating disputes. Some of the earliest shocks in what later became post-colonial theories. Why should the continued existence, or not, of an English department have generated so much fury and fury. I want to revisit the document called On the Abolition of the English Department. By way of teasing out the ideological, epistemological, and pedagogical issues of the dispute and their impact on my life and work in practice and um, that was, um, yeah, we'll, we'll delve into that one in a minute. And I think what, what I was saying earlier was um, some of what you've spoken about, the journey and the warning shots that you did like 50 years ago uh, were the beginnings where, where we started that conversation. So in this section, I, I'm, I'm also going to invite um, 
Kivuku um, to contribute and also and I struggle with this one because uh, she, she likes to tell me to, to refer to her with, by her professional name instead of calling her my mother uh, when we're in public spaces but uh, Dr. Christine Mudoni Kahigi um, who's, um, who's a lecturer at the uh, University of Nairobi on sociology but she was a history teacher and, and I'd say a lot of what I do now perhaps stems back from that because a lot of the history that we learned, not just our family history of resistance and history around, including about yourself, uh, was from the, my parents and, and from her. But we've had challenges and we've asked questions like, why did we not learn this stuff? What, what I was learning from home is not what I was learning in school. So. Um, I'll invite you, Dr. Christine Kahigi, um, to, um, to respond to this question around how do you think what we were left with? So uh, obviously or clearly, um, uh, Professor Ngugi started something and you've joined the university much later on, um, but what we have now is a continuation or uh, the examples that have been given as well of languages and not being taught in school. Um, what do you think we were left with and or, or we continue with now in terms of understanding colonial coloniality or colonial legacies um, if you can unmute your mic okay thank you Benny and um, I feel so humbled to be engaged in such a conversation with such a great man whom I heard about after, in fact, the time he was undergoing through those troubles, I was in Form 5, 1977. And uh, I had done Professor Gugge's book, um, The River Between, as one of my set books in uh, Form 4. I loved literature. In fact, I had hoped to continue with literature and uh, history, but I was told there are too many uh, others who did not have an option because you needed three subjects in A-level. I had the three very, very well. I wanted literature and history, but I was given literature and geography. So this is a great day for me, uh, coming face to face in the <laughs> most effective way under the circumstances because I feel like I'm in the same room with him. And thank you so much for your contribution. Now, I was a history teacher for 23 years, uh, both in O-levels and A-levels. Before the A-levels, we are uh, uh, kicked out and we adopted just O-levels. And um, uh, History and literature are closely related. And uh, most of what professor went through, they were together with the history lecturers, Akinamaino Akinyate was my lecturer and others. So they're very related. And uh, even right from what he has told me, because I feel like um, removing my name on the screen right now, because uh, he has still challenged me especially about the names. And I know during the years that I taught, I used to question the content of what you are teaching 
but uh, I was teaching during a few, uh, during a Moise era, when you had to be very careful what you said. Uh, when we adopted Nyao philosophy, a philosophy that even the teachers never understood. And uh, in history, uh, and I used to challenge that a lot. And I think this is where Penina got interested because what you'd learn, I would maybe uh, undo it in the evening or when the schools closed. Then during the colonial, when we ca came to cover the colonial period, we would talk about the development during the colonial period. And we know, and uh, we are aware that uh, most of the content we taught was written by foreigners, not our people. And unfortunately, the first African writers later, except the brave ones like Professor Ngoge, would simply reproduce what they were taught. So when we, 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 we would have a curriculum that covers about David Livingstone, about Speak and Baton, and I would be teaching that. And uh, when it came to uh, African societies, yes, we'd talk about those who resisted, but in passing. And my, 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 my heart felt that we really required to talk more about people like Imwato Angoma, the one who led the, the, the Kamba resistance during the days of the Imperial British East Africa Company. But we already mentioned those. We would go to how the, 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 the resistance, the, those who resisted were crushed by the superior power of the, of the colonialists and how we told the line. Then when we came to A-level history, uh, the, the syllabus used to offer history, two areas, African history and European history. And I still remember African history would talk about those like in Ashaka, the Zulu, how they were defeated. Most of the emphasis was how they were defeated. Then uh, come to Rhodesia, because my days were talking about Rhodesia. And we would talk about Cecil Rhodes all the way from South Africa, coming to Rhodesia and dreaming to go to Cairo, to take the whole of Africa up to Cairo. The emphasis was still there. And uh, I, I, I remember when I went to teach a national school, you know, because before then, of course, you teach, there is a less challenge and few questions at the lower level. But during the A-levels, when you concentrated on just three subjects, we are expected to cover more. And this is where I would reveal content that I was not supposed to. And most students would ask me, but Mwalimu, why are we not taught this? A-levels, you know, national schools was after A-level. When I went to a national school, it was after A-levels were over. And when I went to teach history, uh, you know, in national schools, we have students from all over, Luo, Luya, Kamba, Kisi, and we know at sales by certain, um, you know, labels we are given. And they would come fearful. For example, I was in a national school in Central Province. 
And the other communities, especially from Western, would be fearful of coming and living among the Kikuyus. They were the rebels. But when we taught the actual history that happened, of course, outside of the syllabus, and I really complete, I really finished my, <laughs> I really finished my, my syllabus anyway. But my students passed very well because what, what I taught was for them to think rather than to memorize, and they'll find it interesting. And I remember they were asking, but we, we have been told Kikuyu's kill, Kikuyu's steal or Kambas are witch doctors and what have you. And these were labels that were you know, developed during the colonial days as they applied the policy of divide and rule. Unfortunately, after independence, our politicians have been using the same to keep us divided and never seeing ourselves as a nation. So that they now keep blaming us about uh, instability and the tribal clashes, whereas in their country it is the ethnic clashes, they're not tribal, because they know the connotation of the term tribe. And uh, I, I think uh, because of the content that was being taught, uh, history kept losing students when it was made uh, a, a choice or an option, because what was given was not relevant and was not meeting the needs of the students who are teaching. So where am I going into all this? I'm simply saying, now for the period that I taught history, the role of women was undermined. And I feel we missed a whole generation of changing this by professor being out in America because we have very few men who advocate for matriarchy rather than patriarchy. Now, so that when we, stop, we talk of the role of women, especially through nationalism and uh, the fight for independence, we are regarded as liberals. And you, you are all aware that most women who have come out and actually take those labels, Akinawangare, Madai, Akinakaroa, they are labeled as uh, rebels, divorcees who can never keep husbands. And I feel like we would have advanced a little bit ahead if we still had Professor Goto Adiongo here, because the kind of discussion we are holding now shows that if many of us, especially from this end, had had it, things might have been better. But uh, still, we are not late because we still have RJN that is fighting for decolonization and uh, racial justice. And we are hoping that once we continue with our conversation, that is the collective conversation, we shall come up with a, you know, a, a way forward. Then when we still look at what goes on, still, I'm still on history. We really have resources to help us write what we now know and avoid what was recorded by those who had went through the same system and are reproducing what they were taught because that is another area that we are very weak. I know how I struggled when uh, I was teaching, how I struggled when I was teaching history 
because we talk about names in our own country. And we talk about areas that have colonial names. Think of the names like Dagoreti, where we had our alliance, Kikuyu. The names that are used there are the corruption of the English names that they gave to those areas when they came and settled. What did we do? We adopted them. Yes, we pronounced them in funny ways, but we have forgotten when they were, what they were originally. So if we try to ask what, uh, what the water was, maybe we have to go to those very old parents you know, who can tell us what they were calling that area. Go to Dagoreti Corner. Go to wherever. So many places that we name today, even as we teach history and the religion and where the churches, the first churches were opened, the first administration opposed by our civilizers, they are all English names. We have lost the original names that they used to be known by. I will not even talk about our own names when we, are, we, we felt so proud when we got an English name because right now I'm thinking twice about it. Then what about the, even the places where our nationalists suffered so much when they fought for our independence? We've been talking about ma mapping those areas. Kagobiri Girls, it is a cemetery for former freedom fighters. That is where the, the torture chambers of the people who are about to be released to yeah. But what, we, what do we know about them? Nothing. We still refer to them by the name that the Mzungu was using, and we really know history about it. That is just one. I think I saw another one in, in uh, uh, Gidoguri and the rest. And all this is in our history and our language. And this is why I said I can see the history and the, the connection between history and language. So how about mapping these places where our, 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 our freedom fighters passed? Then my other concern, how often do we learn about those who did not uh, meet the standards of the colonialists when they handed us independence? We study about Jomo Kenyatta fine we study about uh, Daniel Rapmoy and we teach, but we read the history of Akina Kagea, Akina Kemadi, those ones you mentioned in passing. And this is very hard. In fact, if I go back to what uh, gave me an interest in history, um, I, when I was in primary school, I belonged to a team of traditional dancers, the best one in Kenya at that time, 1968-1969. The team was known as Kinyereria. Professor may have heard about Kinyereria. Those are the days when we used to go to Gatondo. And what are some of the songs I sang in primary four? And I think I'll sing of one. And you understand why even when we teach history and when we call, up, we call people for to unite and be one, we still cannot. I can remember this song, which I didn't know the meaning. Um, Guero hikiakerego oi eia kenyata Nampava ne moru Namaito ne moru Orietare Jekiate deruta gaigo gona Muruke 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 daigua Muruke daigua Amofu woke toka Those who are there at that time know we were singing against a particular ethnic 
group at that time for political reasons. And uh, that was the time that uh, we went to drink tea at Kenyatta's. When we were taken to drink tea, even as primary school kids, I knew that was not a place because I used to go to Kenyatta's place every other day. Then the other song that also makes me wonder why we cannot sing for others was uh, now, it was him who fought for independence and the others, you get the meaning. I wish I had more time. Then the whole thing, we are not supposed to talk about it, but I do know, and I'm not talking about the nationalist whole thing because that one was positive and that one was calling for the, the Kikuyu, I mean the Kenyan people to come together and fight the colonialists. I'm talking about the whole thing of 1969. Most of you who are old enough can tell where even the young children were taken, including me. And some of the vows were made to take with that we shall never marry from those other communities. And there were derogatory words that we were using, which we really knew men, the meaning, but you we are wanting never to talk about it. So what am I bringing all this? Now, if we have to decolonize, it will have to start from the small ones. And then those of us who have gone deeper because Racial Justice Network has opened my eyes. It has enabled me to dig deeper, especially after I carried uh, that data collection for Penina's work, going to talk to people who were actually involved in the Mau Mau war, Akina Field Mashomodoni. The things I had, I feel it is time we wrote the real history in the real language, and we know what even those others that are not uh, supportive of today's regime, what they said for us to, to, to let us be our own judges. Let us learn the history of all. Let us learn the history of Jaramugi Ogiga Odinga, Kagea, Kemadi. Let us learn about Bogewa Diongo, especially when he's alive. Let us learn about Mazurui, Professor. Let's hear what they said in our history and hear less about Speak and Button, about Livingstone, about a civilization of Kenya. And we are going to get somewhere. I, I, I don't know whether I've said what I wanted, but because I'm also yeah. conscious of it, I do know that we have so much to do, especially now when we are holding this collective conversation. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Um, I, I should have warned that we are, I think, in the midst of historians, we're in the midst of storytellers, we're in the midst of the four of us. I know we speak a lot and I'm trying to keep an eye on the time and move the conversation, but it's also really deep and meaningful. So hopefully people can bear with us. I've seen questions have come in anyway. So I'm gonna try and summarize the questions maybe in the last 10 minutes, but I would like to invite Gidhuku um, to, yeah, I think the team are joking that we have these decolonial times that we, we use when we're holding some of our events because it's harder to restrict and, and hear and allow for all these 
depth and meaning. So I'm gonna invite Kivuku. I know we've seen you uh, several times today on the video and thanks again for that, the, all of it. Um, but I've, I also remember when, you, uh, when we met both times, when we met in 2019 and 2020, we spoken about the history and what we were taught, which I know, again, I struggle with saying Dr. Kaigi, what Mam was just mentioning now, um, how, how, yeah, what, what's your take on, on what uh, Professor Ngugi has been saying about the loss, about what we were left with and what, again, Mami's talking about um, in terms of the, the departures of, of our own history. If you can unmute your mic. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I don't want to take a lot of time, but uh, because first and foremost, I've been here. I, 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 I was at the beginning, uh, I was there again with uh, reading, trying or acting or pretending to be Ngogi, <laughs> reading his thoughts, which was very powerful even when, when I was uh, recording it uh, earlier. Um, yeah, but what I can say briefly is that uh, um, it, you know, getting to know oneself is not easy. And uh, the lack that, uh, the biggest uh, lack that uh, I would say personally I've had is of getting to know Professor Ngoge and getting to know other revolutionaries and people who have stood out um, uh, to speak about the independence of the mind. Uh, in school, I went to Visaosho Primary School. Uh, in standard one, two, and three, what would happen is that uh, you leave school at about uh, uh, 3, 320, 320 in the afternoon. And what would happen for me in my experience was that uh, the fellow Indian uh, students would be left learning Gujarati and I would be free to go and play and everything. Uh, and it hit me at one point, like, why are they learning Gujarati? I'm not being taught Gujarati or my language. Uh, so the best thing that I could do as a young boy was to go get my mother's Bible, which was in Gekoyo, and start reading so that I learn Gekoyo. So in my innocence, I got to learn Gekoyo by myself, not taught by anybody, but uh, through the feeling that uh, why am I being left out? The others are learning Gujarati and I am being just to, to, to learn English. So <laughs> in the mix of all these, I, I, I know my Bible very well, <laughs> but uh, the best that I got out of it is the language, is Gekoyo. Fast forward, uh, when we came to uh, the struggles of the second liberation in 92 at the Freedom Corner, uh, it is at this place that I interacted so much with the language of the struggle. The language of the struggle was the language that people were speaking. People would come and speak in their own languages. Uh, and uh, the mothers of political prisoners, uh, definitely we could not communicate to them in English or in Swahili. And so, so we started learning and discussing and uh, talking about language. Uh, what uh, language can we communicate 
uh, uh, with the people we are pushing, which is uh, the, the struggles uh, for the release of political prisoners. And that is where we read a lot, shared books about Ngogi, about Mainawa Kenyate. Uh, we got inspirations from people like Wele Mutunga and other people. And saying and understanding, we got to understand that uh, you really don't have to uh, have the English, which we call the English of the nose who is speaking with the nose, uh, you know, with the accent and, uh, and, uh, and uh, feeling that when, once you do that, then you know more than anybody else. Um, the struggles uh, that have happened since then, and especially at that time, for me was that art is one of the things that we can use and is a tool uh, that is so powerful in pushing the struggle. And this uh, tool does not choose any language. You can choose any language to speak truth to power. Um, so some of the songs that we learned at the Freedom Corner were taught by old women, you know, the mothers of Merogi Karaoke, uh, the mothers of uh, people like Koigi Waamwere. Uh, and and uh, these old women were singing and teaching us songs that were uh, sung during the days of the struggle uh, by the Mau Mau. I remember a joke or, or, or a very beautiful story that uh, is told about Shaka Zulu. And the story of Shaka Zulu is, uh, is, 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 is interesting because it was translated and, 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 and he was told, or rather the, 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 after saying that we are not going to give up our struggle uh, in South Africa, uh, he, the people were threatened and told that, you know, if you don't accept Christianity uh, and English, then uh, you'll burn in hell and the fire will be very big. And so Shakazulu retorted and said, around here, we eat fire. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I think uh, that is the thing, you know, if we are able to communicate, if you are able to understand ourselves, if we are able to, uh, to uh, be clear in ourselves of what the struggle is, the language does not matter. It does, the, we cannot liberate I think, Zuku, I think you've muted by accident or something like that. Yeah, mute. To be and to go, the language does not matter. English does not matter or any other language does not matter. Your language is what, the language of the heart and the mind and your tongue is what matters. So I wouldn't want to talk so much because I've been around and uh, uh, I've already communicated, but I think uh, it is important for us to teach the current generation, especially that it is okay. It is okay to sing in your language, like uh, one Kwame Regei is doing uh, right now in Kenya, singing and communicating in Igekoyo. What one Hari Kemani is doing, singing and communicating in his language. What one Winyo uh, is doing, singing 
in the Luo and communicating. So uh, we don't have to be embarrassed of our languages. We don't have to be uh, uh, small. We don't have to smallenize ourselves uh, when it comes to speaking and uh, communicating in our languages. I think it has to be clear, and I think it's only professor who can be able to do this, uh, to separate the fact that uh, uh, tribalism is different from uh, identity of language. When politicians want to divide us, and when they do, because they, they, they're still doing it and working hard on that, we have to understand that uh, they normally don't divide us in our languages. They do it in English. They do it in uh, uh, foreign languages because it is just about them, you know? So language uh, is an important thing all over the world uh, from wherever people come from because this is the only place that one can feel confident and comfortable to communicate what is deep in the heart. So um, uh, I, I think the current generation is who we have to focus, the current and the future generation is who, who, who we need to focus on more than even the damage that has happened in the past. But thank you so much uh, for having me. And thank you to Ngogi, for, uh, Professor Ngogi for, for, for being the guide uh, who among others, have helped some of us to understand that it is okay to be who you are and to be proud of who you are and to communicate um, uh, towards the future, the struggle towards the future, Asante. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kibuku. Um, and yeah, um, all of those things that you said, um, I'm, I'm compelled uh, because I know obviously the next part was going to come back to you, uh, Professor Ngugi, and I've also tried to summarize some of the questions that are coming in because I'm aware of the time, but I know we can't do it. It feels like we need another hour, but maybe we can, some of us who have capacity can stay on a little bit, but then those who need to definitely go can go. So I've tried to summarize some of the questions uh, in also so you can respond to this piece that we asked what were we left with. But, um, and I don't know, can I together I don't know how, how we'll do it. And yeah, for people who asked for translations, there was a, 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 an idea that definitely we will not say everything in English. And uh, the tech people, if they catch it quick enough, they can translate at the bottom in terms of what we're saying. Um, but one of the things I remember clearly speaking about was um, something that uh, when we've been speaking about education, which meant that the tying down um, and, and the fact that, that, that the language should equip and give us uh, skills as opposed to disempowering us. And that's something, and I, and I was also reflecting back on this joke that you made, and, and obviously we, we carried it on for a while around when you were trying, when you're writing your book when you're in prison and, um, and you were writing in Kikuyu. And what the, the, I think the example you gave was Shaitani because English is a language that you're very familiar with. 
and and here you are struggling or trying to write in Kikuyu and you said that you are fighting Okahurana Nako. Um, so um, I'm interested to hear a little bit more, more about that, but then also some questions now, because I can throw the questions in, was, is there anything that is lost in translation? Because we, we understand, obviously, the books you've written have been in Gikoyo, and then you've translated them. So there was a question about that. Uh, the second question is around whether revolution walks hand in hand with recentering what colonization took from colonized people, creating new epistemologies. And, and also, is, it, is there a sense of, of, of revenge even for the, the way other languages have, have um, taken on English? So I think maybe somebody was talking about around, for example, Pigeon English that, or, or, or Creole, that the fact that they've put it, whatever they have, we put it in. And I know when we speak Sheng, which is obviously slightly different to Kiswahili and, and, and Kikuyu, it's, it's, there's a mixture of something going on. So is there some sort of um, get, getting our own back for when people are able to infiltrate the languages? So that's the third question. Um, and then there was one around the question around English being taught in schools um, or being the main language taught in schools. And I know obviously we're here speaking in English, and I know integration is a big thing even in the UK. And most, yeah. you know, the challenges that people have if they're caught, especially by the far right, speaking in another language where they're sat, in, sat out eating or whatever, the attack is you're here speaking English. Um, so, is there something to be said about the fact that English is such is so dominant, <laughs> and therefore um, to be able to uphold our languages as we spoken and cultures as well and do we see that as, as as a form of resistance and the final question is is when we talk about decolonizing and, and I know it was really good because you clearly broke it down it's not decolonizing especially the, the, the anxiety that there is right now that the institutions and the universities um, have taken it on and sometimes actually gaining not just appropriating it Get, getting money as a result. Um, only today I, I, we caught wind of the fact that investment even in Palestine, our universities are doing that. Uh, but that's a whole different story. But the fact that everybody's talking about decolonizing now is either watering it down. Um, and, and, and so the way you broke it down, you cannot do it in isolation. It's economic, it's political, it's psychological, it's cultural. But then there is a sense that when we, we talk about decolonizing, uh, we are focused very much on the social ills and, and uh, material inequality and oppression. So do you find the need to talk about love and joy and, and, and food in African literature and arts in general? So those are five questions I've just thrown at you. Hopefully you can answer them in some of them maybe together and, and still manage to end I don't think we'll end at eight o'clock, but um, I'll be hopeful. But there you go. Uh, back to you, Wali Mugugi. Oh, my God. Nefaso, <clears throat> thank you very much for the conversation in general. <clears throat> I've learned a lot, um, learning a lot, uh, particularly from, <laughs> from, your, from your mother. <laughs> uh, what's her African name, your mother's name? Mothoni. Mothoni, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a very beautiful name. Uh, Mothoni, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Let me start with love. <laughs> yes, we can talk about love and other things, you know. But there's no reason why, uh, if I say I love you, it's more lovely than a goddess, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, in other words, uh, even wooing your partner, you know. Uh, you can woo in an African language. There's, there's nothing that says that you do it in English and so on, you know. Yeah. Uh, but me, see, well, I want to make very clear that I'm not saying that English is bad to learn English or French or Portuguese. They are good languages, but so also is Yoruba, so also is Luo, so also is Luganda, so also is Zulu. Huh? In other words, there's no language which is more of a language than any other language. Yeah. Let me give you another example which I normally give. Huh? Uh, uh, or rather, please this way. What I totally oppose is hierarchy of languages. That some languages are inherently more of languages than any other. Hmm? Others, Gujarati is as good a language as English. In other words, it's a language like English or like Mandarin, okay? Or like Zulu, like Koyo and so on. So what I really oppose is hierarchy of languages and colonialism put languages in a hierarchy. European languages are best, the others are lower. Hmm? Or put this way, you know, a ladder has got ranks. You step, steps. They think of other languages as lower rank or lower steps on the ladder to an English heaven. It's as if in heaven, people speak European languages. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, let, me, let me give you another example uh, with music. Uh, excuse me. Musical instruments is a good, good example for me. Um, you, there's piano, okay? There's guitar, there's wadede, there's nyatiti, right? Each instrument has its own sound, okay? And you cannot say the sound of guitar is more sounding, even my coin award there, is more sounding than, say, you know, a uh, piano. Or the piano is higher than violin. Okay. Each musical instrument has its own musicality. They can play the same melody but you can tell 
that one is piano, that one is guitar, that one is nyatiti or whatever, right? No. In other words, every instrument has its unique musicality. And you don't say, okay, let's destroy all the other instruments and leave only piano. Okay? No, you say, no, if they come together, they form an orchestra, you know, you know, they form a kind of harmony uh, and they produce orchestras and so on. If you arrange them differently in a different way, they can produce cacophony. Arrange it one way, they produce harmony. Another way, cacophony, huh? right? You know. So in the same way, languages, each language has its own unique musicality, whether it's English or Kikuyu or Kiswahili, you know, or Luo, you can feel that music in each language, right? You know, and there's no musicality which more of a musicality than any other, okay? Every language, big or small, has its own musicality, unique sounds, just like anything else, okay? So to remember that one, okay? So languages don't have, you don't have to kill one language in order to know another, but you can know that language and add another, that's different. It's like getting the piano and the guitar playing together a melody, uh, but they retain their different sounds, okay? But they can be brought together. In the same way, languages can give to each other if they are made to relate on the basis of equal give and take, okay? Languages, so I, I, I'm, I'm glad I know English language. I'm glad I can read Shakespeare and other English writers and interpret them for myself. But I also wish I knew Yoruba or Zulu or Russian, okay? Or Spanish, they would add to my, yeah. So African, the key thing about languages is we have to avoid the sense of hierarchy. The Koyo language is not higher than Luo. Huh? Or Kiswahili is not higher than. But Kiswahili is useful for us to know as Kenyans, as East Africans, as Africans, right? So we have to think different about languages and remove the idea of hierarchy, which produced by colonialism. The sense that some languages are inherently higher than others. No, but languages can relate. They can read through translation, like my book, Kedamo uh, Yuru, is now available in, uh, in, in English. Huh? And I know, I know it'll be available, I think, either in Turkish or Kurdish. It's, it's being translated to other languages as well, right now, as we are talking, okay? And it's got origins in Koyo. 
in the same way, uh, we can have, uh, what's her name, Jane Abuchi of Kenya is doing a lot of translation into Ekegusi. She has translated uh, Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare into Ekegusi. She has also translated things fall apart into Ekegusi. And she's doing the river between in Ekegusi. And that's a good thing. You, you get from other languages, we enrich our languages. What's wrong is when we somehow or other think our languages are not worth, they're not, they don't have the sound of educatedness or sound of intelligence, right? But they are good languages like any other, not better, not worse, just like any other language, okay? Like many other musical instruments, you know? And when we exchange on this equal give and take, we are all equally rich. Like I said, an example, I'm glad that through English I can read Shakespeare, right? But there's no reason I cannot read Shakespeare through translation into Gekoyo, if it's been available in Gekoyo. Huh? I read Russian literature, but not in Russian, in translation, right? Yeah. So, but the key thing I want to leave with all of us, remember that only we who can do something for our languages. Um, let me talk about, there's someone who talked about revenge you know, by having Sheng and other, you know, and <laughs> there's nothing wrong in developing new languages, quite frankly. I think it's a good thing you have Sheng and, uh, uh, and uh, we can in fact talk about that history is very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. But why? Should you abandon, say, your mother tongue for Sheng? Why can't you know your mother tongue and Sheng as well? <laughs> right? Yeah. I know that there are some people who think that uh, you can use English in such a way and uh, French, is a, you become subversive by inserting a few African words into English. There's no subversion. You are just enriching English language and its capacity to do many things, right? And there's nothing wrong with it. That's what you want to do. But it's not a replacement for anchoring ourselves in African languages. And then you can add other languages. You can even invent new languages like Sheng or anything. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? is abandonment of one's mother tongue or the language one's culture, that's what is negative. And that's what's basically colonial, okay? Uh, translation, I don't know, I don't want to mention translation. I call translation the language of languages. Do you need the best thing for African languages, actually? was done, you know who did most for African languages? Actually, European missionaries, <laughs> because they had the Bible <laughs> translated into so many African languages that even now, some of the basic is in a, in a 
in the Bible, they call Bible for reasons. And it's true or rather. So translation actually has helped maintain our languages and that's a good thing. Although they may have had other intentions, that's okay. But the reality is the translation of the Bible has helped our language preserve our written form of our languages. As it also helped English and German and French. Remember before they were writing only in Latin. Huh? And if I might remind people, the first Englishman to try to translate the Bible from Latin into English, what happened to him? They hanged him afterwards. Okay? Yeah. In, in, in other words, remember there was a time when they thought English was so crude and rough and was saying, how can you, how can you talk medical terms in English? Hmm? It had to be Latin and so on. So, you know, anyway, translation is a good thing. And I wish I could see more languages, more trans between African languages themselves, you know. Uh, like my story, uh, has now been translated into, I think, a hundred languages in the world. Or the upright revolution. You can go to Galada website and you find all the translations there and all the languages there, you know. So translation is really uh, uh, a very good thing. Let me see anything else. Uh, uh, I think I've really answered nearly all the questions, I think. Yeah, no, that's good. There's still more that have come in and, and somebody's still saying that theirs hasn't been answered, but I really think uh, we can, okay. we, some of us can stay on maybe for another 10 minutes, but for the people who are leaving, I do want to say thank you uh, so much for being here, participating. I've, I've not been able to follow the whole chat but I can definitely see some people saying thank you and, and, and logging in from everywhere. I would ask if um, my mom can and can do like a closing or a summary uh, just, just for that purpose. And then we'll end with Kivuku's song that was playing there before. I think we had Kamaru's uh, songs as well, but we might end with Kivuku's. But I, I'm also interested in hearing if there's anything else we want to add. There was somebody who asked, when, when writing, do you aim at truth or wisdom? Um, and, and then also a question around decolonizing religion. And this for me, I smiled because my research is, is kind of talked about five pillars of domination that was used during colonialism and therefore they still kind of sustain and uphold each other. And religion is one of them. The other one is education and then is violence, uh, governance and um, economics. So that's a really interesting question, and I, but I don't know whether we can delve totally deep into it. Um, but I did want to at least allow for a comment from each one of you and maybe end with mom so that mom can close it. Uh, I also want to uh, say to people that, that, yeah, please definitely, if you're interested in hearing more about our work, supporting our work, 
definitely go into the racial justice network and, and, and look through. We've got an event coming up exactly two weeks from now on reparations, and it's with and by our patron Esther Stanford Jose, which is um yeah, mind-blowing. Um the sessions we've had have also been really good. So I'd encourage anybody if you're interested in this uh kind of continuing some of these collective conversations, definitely join us on the 27th. I think it's going to be on the 6th. It might have been put in the chat room as well, but there's also a, 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 a document that's been added on that has, if people want to stay in touch or be added to our mailing list, because we are producing a lot of content, um, so they can be added on there too. But I'll, yeah, I'll just go around now, the, the, the three of you for comment and um, end with mum. Uh, but um, I know I'm going to stay on for a little bit. And, and again, Professor Ngugi, thank you so much, because I know what what was going on just slightly before and to be here and to be present and to bring your full self and all this knowledge um, I'm really grateful but if we can stay on a little bit after it would be great but over to a comment from you so far I mean Giduku, you said something um, as well maybe we could start with you then professor and then my mom to close oh you mean say something oh hello yeah, the, the three of you. Yeah, the three of you to say something. I don't know who will start yourself or Gibuku can unmute himself. Can somebody unmute Gibuku? Oh, is it mute? Oh, am I yeah, mute? Oh, okay. Oh, Gibuku, yeah. Can you say another poem? Another. Oh, can you read that thing for Wangari? Wangari. <laughs> eh? <laughs> You have the book with you? You got the book. I've got the book here, but you can't read it from this far. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He unfortunately, I don't have. I unfortunately didn't even uh, uh, I had recorded it earlier. Yeah. I had recorded Wangari's uh, uh, poem. <laughs> but, but yeah, so so we can always revisit it later. But yeah. uh, I think I think my closing is just that uh, what we are learning and what we are talking about today is important. Uh, mostly for the generations to come. Because if we drop the ball now, it means that uh, generations to come will be so lost. They will not understand themselves. They will not understand who they are. They will not understand the struggles that are, are around them. So I'll only finish with uh, saying that if only I knew how to play the guitar, if only I could play the guitar, then I would have done a song for Mekatilili Wa Menza, queen from Giriyama land. She who was stolen by the colonial terrorists and taken all the way to Gusi land. Queen Mekatilili Wa Menza, she who broke out of prison and walked more than a thousand kilometers back to Giriyama land to continue with the liberation of our minds and our people. If only I could play the guitar, I would have done a song for you. If only I could have played the guitar, I would do a song for Modoni Nyanjiro Mamayetu. She who in 1922 was shot in the heart and her blood flowed down to the ground mixing with the soil of our land. If only I could play the guitar, I would have done a song for you, Modoni Nyanjiro. If only I knew how to play the guitar, I would have done a song for you, Penny, and you, Goge, and you, Professor Kahige, 
and you, Willie, and you, and you, and you, and Sai, and all of us. If only I knew how to play the guitar, I would have done a song for all of us. Shukran, Asante Sana. Yeah, for me, I'd just like to thank you again. Thank you very much, uh, Wangari, for organizing this and uh, for introducing your, your mother, wonderful mother. <laughs> That's wonderful. I just wanted to mention just one thing. Uh, Kemet, Egyptian civilization, yeah. There is a group, I think Germany, I think led by Jerry, yeah? uh, Jerry and others, who I think are going have started Kemet Awards for achievements in African languages. Now, Kemet is very important. It was the language spoken in old Egypt. Egyptian civilization was African in every way, right? And it lasted 3,000 years, longer than even the current Western civilization, which is only 2,000 years, right? Egypt was there for 3,000 years. Medicine, you know, architecture, you know, mathematics, writing systems, all originated in Egypt. The famous Egyptian um, Greek philosophers we read about all used to go to Egypt for learning, then we'll come back to Greece, like Pythagoras. He spent some time in Egypt learning and uh, Egypt was an African civilization. Kemet is the language they spoke there in ancient Kemet. And there are many others, you know, civilization in Africa, you know, which were African language civilizations. So what we have done in the past, we can do. <laughs> I don't see African inventors, you know, in African languages, I can see inventors, I, I let us compete with other nations in getting um, uh, uh, space crafts, you know, we should, there's no reason why it's not Africa leading uh, journeys to the Mars and other places, you know. Uh, I want us to discover, to invent, to make things, you know. And that's why in my epic, uh, I try to show the nine women, the or 10 women, as makers of things, because they had no brothers to do it for them. So obviously they had to know how to, uh, to, uh, to make clothes. Uh, they would have to know how to defend themselves. They would not know how to hunt and to organize because there's no brother to depend upon. Remember that. That's what the story of the perfect nine or Kedamoyuru teaches us, you know. Uh, women 
in using their mind, their heart, their hand. And we should, that should be our inspiration, what our mothers were able to do, you know. And remember, it's not an accident that for among the Ikoyo, every clan among the Ikoyo is named after a woman, not after a man. Huh? The only man mentions in our legend is Ikoyo, the original father, and Mombi. Otherwise, it's all the other. Yeah, to remember that. We have to find ways of unleashing our imagination, you know, to reach the moon, to Mars, and beyond. We can do it. Why? Because we have done it before in Kemet, right? Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you so much. I was also told to make a comment. And uh, I'll just thank everyone who participated this evening. It is a great evening. And um, I think, Geduku, you have a lot to do. Uh, you are with me on this side of the world, especially in relation to names and our language. Uh, you let the youth, I know how influential you are once you decide to make a speech. I saw what you did in a, with the Alliance girls within a very short time, and you can do it with the young people uh, so that they stop shaming uh, the, the ones who cannot use the English language in the perfect way. Rubbing. They twang, they do what, and they make fun of them. They make students from rural area not to talk uh, in class, although they perform very well. Because the minute they say something, everybody is laughing. It is up to you to make them proud of it. I know my, my, my students at the university will find it funny because the minute I start a new class, I always say expect a lot of arts everywhere because I'm from Central. So no need to laugh at the back there. And uh, I, I think I said the ball rolling and the, it is no longer funny when you by twang, they don't notice. So we do, we have to do a lot of uh, work in that area because I know how effective you are. Uh, then can I also thank Penny uh, for organizing this. In fact, she has created great opportunities for me instead of the other way around. And I'm happy that you organized this. Uh, we've learned a lot. Not to forget that uh, Penny's dad had a surgery yesterday. He's in hospital. And uh, we, 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 we have still met and done a great thing. And I will say to everybody there, he sent his love and said he's doing well. It's important to mention that because I know this was a sacrifice. Otherwise, um, I, I, I also thank Professor because I've been told we are on something else, but you had to cancel something in order to join us. Otherwise, together for the rest of the academicians, we have a lot to do. We need to write, we need to campaign, we need to tell people to be proud of their languages and also the history. And unless we reach them in such forums, then they will never know. Like we have done so much today and we thought we knew, only to know that we didn't know, that we didn't know. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
thank you so much. I think we'll end on that note. And um, yeah, I did think about dad and, and everything else. Um, I also wanted to mention, we didn't get to talk about this book and this is also almost becoming a Bible for me, uh, Global Ethics, um, Theory and the Politics of Knowing. I'm using it a lot. Um, so um, and we didn't talk about what uh, do, yeah, global ethics means and stuff, but maybe for the next one, it might mean that we'll have to arrange to have another conversation with you, uh, Professor, but and maybe elongate it even longer than two hours, uh, decolonial time. But thank you so much. And thank you for all the comments and everybody who stayed on as well. I hope you found this useful and, and, and helpful. And hopefully we can continue doing the work outside and beyond, because I think this is supposed to sensitize us in ways that we don't often see and come across. So thank you. Um, I think we'll put on uh, one of um, uh, Givuku's song for now, but, but yeah, so thank you. Kwaherini, Asanteni Sana. And I think I also thought through, I should say this before, they are, there is a lot more work being done as well around Afrocentrism. Um, um, children, school uh, 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 of freedom, uh, freedom in Nakuru, I know in Rwanda, in Tanzania, there's a lot of work also being done around centering and, and really acknowledging those histories. So also, I know we, we're doing a small part by doing this connection, but perhaps people could look around themselves and support those projects, those work that the work that's going out there as well. So Asanteni and Kwaheri. Okay. Let us remember, remember, may we remember the dismembered. Let us remember, remember, Remember not to forget, not to forget, not to forget. It's a journey that will never forget. Yes, I remember to remember not to forget the great Mekatilili Wamenza. It's a journey that will never forget. She, the queen from Giriamaland, she who was stolen in 1914, taken from Malindi all the way to Busi. Queen Mekatilili Wamenza, she broke out of prison and walked back more than 800 kilometers to continue with the liberation of our people. It's a journey that I'll never forget. I remember not to forget. King, remember Kwetalel Rapsamoei, Kenyan king. From the Nandi Hills, he resisted against the colonial invasion. It's a journey that will never forget. they shot him right in the heart. In the heart. In the heart. In the heart. It's a journey that will never forget. Remember, remember. The great Wayakiwa Hinga, him who was a king from Nairobi, him who brought forth the great Wamboi Wahotieno, King Wayakiwa Hinga, I'll never forget. He was buried alive in Voi, alive, alive. Yes, I choose not uh, to forget the great General Baimungi, the first political assassination in Kenya. 
I choose not to forget the great general. Let us remember, remember, remember to remember. May we remember, remember, remember not to forget. Let us remember to remember the great Pio Gamapinto, him who fought in two countries, in Goa, India, and in Kenya. The great Pio Gamapinto, first member of parliament to be assassinated in independent Kenya. I will never forget, never forget. I choose to remember not to forget. Yeah. It's a journey that we'll never forget. Gamma Pinto, your light shines on. We move on. May we remember not to forget. Remember not to forget. It's a journey that we'll never how can I forget not to remember the great uh, Bildad Kagia, the most principled Kenyan revolutionary leader? Him, him who sacrificed all worldly possessions uh, to save uh, this great nation. I will never forget Bildad Kagia. Remember, remember, remember to remember. Remember, remember, remember not to forget. It's a journey that we'll never forget. I choose to remember the great Muse Morowa Galana from Pokomoland. Him who donated that we'll never forget. the melody that we sing upon the national anthem, Muse Morowa Galana. I choose not to forget. Justice be our shield and defender. It's a journey that we'll never forget. kama kina chotupwa, lakini I choose not to forget. Let us remember, remember, remember not to forget. I choose to remember the professors of the people, Professor Ngogi Wadiongo, Professor Oyugi Okongo, Professor Maina Wakenyate, Professor Katama Mukangi, Professor Wangare Madai, she of the order of the rising sun. May we remember not to forget the great Mwakenya legends. Put in waterlog the Nyayo House dungeons. Tortured, made to suffer for Kenya to recover. Yes, I remember Adongo Ogonye, whom who brought forth the great Karemi Ndutu again. Wahome whispers Mutahi, Josephine Mulili, Akauka.